Hello and welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with John Pope. So it's time to be free and do what you want to do. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to episode five of series four of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. And welcome to you wherever you are in the world. And if you're a first time listener, you're most welcome. And as always, check out our website, www.watfordjazzjunction.com, which is always being updated. And you'll see right now that you can register if you're in the Watford area or wish to attend the Watford area. We've got two new gigs coming up later in the year, one featuring the Jazz of Dudley Moore with the sensational Chrissingham Quartet and one with Tony Kofi's uh, terrific quintet as they paint a portrait of Julian Cannonball Adderley. We cannot wait for both. Now... Today, I am in conversation with a darling of Twitter and social media, a backbone of the UK free jazz scene, a finger demon, an expressive musician, a complex composer and brilliant bass player. It is the terribly wonderful John Pope. John, hello. How are you? Hello, Chris. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. Thank you for that glowing introduction. That was great. Oh, it's what we do. It gets worse from here. Um, So where in the world are you hanging out? I am coming to you from Newcastle-upon-Tyne, my hometown, uh, where I've Very lived nice. for the last however many years it is. Uh, and it's all good. It's nice and bright outside. It's a little bit cold this morning, despite being bright. But um, yeah, I've been pretty well here in the same room for the last <laughs> 14 months or so, uh, 13 months. And yeah, it's becoming it's becoming a little bit of a box now that I'm in. But, um, but I, love, I love being here. I love the town. It's great to be here. That's all good. And uh, yeah, we had Faye McCalman, who's one of your partners in crime on a couple of series ago, uh, and she was painting a wonderful picture of Newcastle. Now, you're our second bass player of recent times, following Hottish on the heels of Daniel uh, Casimir from our last series. And he was having an, an OK lockdown, I think. He was just having plenty of time for family, but also for music. Mm-hmm. Rate yours. 14 months of what? 14 months of what? Well, it's been up and down. I think everyone's had, you know, a rough a rough road to go down, but um I think I've I really have to count myself amongst one of the lucky ones, you know. I, I don't have kids. I don't have a family. My my wife and I have pretty well been able to maintain our lifestyle as it's been. And my wife is an NHS worker. She works in the Royal Victoria Infirmary here. So she, her working, exactly right. Her working life has been unaffected. So she's been living the same sort of routine that she normally did. Um, As for me, I've, I've, I've rattled around trying to figure out what I wanted to do, feeling some pressure to be very productive under lockdown. And at, yeah, yeah, yeah. At first, I kind of felt the same thing, and then it eased off a little bit, and I stopped feeling the pressure to be productive. And then, without meaning to, suddenly became quite productive. And, you know, my lockdown musically has been pretty good. I've put out a couple of records. Um, yeah, I've started yeah. a couple of, of projects rolling, a few collaborations that are sort of starting to bubble away at various sort of points. Um, Archipelago have, have made an album, which... I'm not sure when this podcast comes out, um, but we'll either have its its release date announced soon or has just been announced, depending on when you drop this. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, love it. So that's all been that's all been pretty good, you know. Maintaining maintaining activity has been has been a real balm as well, and you know, I 
I really miss seeing all my friends in the in the improv scene um, and the jazz scene. I really miss seeing my kind of non-musical friends as well. Uh, but being able to work and being kind of grateful for the opportunities that have appeared has really been a help. It's really been an anchor through all of it. You know, I can't complain. There are people who have it a lot worse than I do. And, you know, I think as as rough as it's been in places, I have to I have to keep I have to keep that in mind. Well, I'm glad you've been uh, so productive and, and we really look forward to the, the fruits of that potential harvest. Um, so I'm going to take you back in time to being little, John. What was your sort of journey into uh, into music and, and jazz in general? And were there any sort of key junction points en route? Well, my, my when I was growing up, my dad was a... is. He's still, he's still with us. My dad is a piano player and he served as a church organist and um we grew up or i grew up there's only me i'm there's there's no siblings there's just me i'm an only child um i grew up with with a lot of music in the house not so much a lot of jazz it was generally um sort of soul rhythm and blues 50s and 60s rock and roll and um and classical music my dad is a huge fan of bach and and church music in general yeah. And things like this. And the organ is like a big part of that. So I started playing the piano. I had piano lessons when I was about six or seven. And they didn't really stick. Although, you know, I enjoyed them. And then I started playing tenor saxophone when I was about eight. And I can trace... Good choice. It was, well, I at the time I thought so, yeah. Um, and it's an instrument that I still really love, but I don't play anymore. I have no, I have no facility on the instrument anymore. It's completely vanished. But um, but I can trace the moment that I that I got into it directly to the the Blues Brothers film when Blue Lou Marini walks along the top of the counter in Aretha Franklin's Soul Food Diner <laughs> for the jazz record. Chris and uh, John just do impressions of Lou Marino walking around Rita Franklin's Soul Cafe. Sweet. Right. What a moment. I can remember that very clearly. And um, to eight-year-old me, way too young to be watching Blues Brothers. Um, or maybe I was nine or ten. I'm not sure. But way too young to watch <laughs> that film fine. anyway. Whatever age I was at, I shouldn't have been watching that film. But um, But it really struck with me. And the music in that movie was great. And that was really kind of the thing that made me... F- that made me get serious about loving music was sort of was soul music really soul and and rock music were the kind of the big things that got their hooks into me and then once I turned I think 15 14 or 15 I started playing the bass guitar my dad had had a bass guitar in the house that he hadn't used for years and um and as is the story I bet for for millions of kids you know I had friends who played guitar I wanted to be in a band with them there were already guitar players and we had a bass at home. So I went, well, I suppose I'll learn this. So um, so I picked it up and picked out some bass lines slowly. My dad showed me a few things. And right about that time is when I started getting into stuff that was a little bit more contemporary to my peers then. You know, this is about, you know, this is the very late 90s, 1999, 2000 sort of era. Yeah. Um, so I started getting the big, the first band I got huge into was Rage Against the Machine. And oh, good call. I was, ah, oh, man, that band still today. I, I think that band is like, it's a it's a perfect gateway drug for aspiring bass players, particularly because it's just, it's just technically demanding enough that you have to stretch your musicianship to play it. 
but it grooves like nobody's business and it's and it's so much fun to play and so heavy and so exciting and um and i you know it's a cliche but i i would come home from school and just put that album on the first rage against the machine album i would just put it on and play it start to finish that was a real way in and sort of around that time, i got really deep into the bass guitar i hadn't got deep into the into the piano or the saxophone yeah. when i started playing those instruments because I was I was a kid mucking about with them, and I hadn't really music hadn't hooked me fully until I started doing something where I was sort of directing my own interest a little bit. You know, when you have lessons on an instrument and you go and you have a teacher and they put etudes or a practice book in front of you and you play it, and I wasn't bad at that. I could do that okay, and I was involved in music at school with their choir and and jazz band and all that kind of stuff, which was a, a fortunate yeah, yeah. way to kind of relate it to my peers but um but until it was the bass guitar and like and like big riffs it just didn't it didn't get me the way that it suddenly got me when I started started doing that myself and um flash forward a few years and I graduated from high school and decided very very last minute that I was going to go and study music um although I didn't do it through a conservatoire system, I went to a I went to a technical college up here, Gateshead College, where I did yeah. um, I did a few years of a sort of foundational foundation degree, which was very focused on sort of being a session player, being like a pop sessioner, and uh, you know developing sort of studio skills, developing repertoire, working in ensembles, which at the time I was. That was my goal. That was entirely my goal was to be like the session guy who could play anything, who could drop into mm. any situation and sort of and and own it. And jazz had only been peripherally burbling away as a thing to be interested in, as like as another style. But I slowly started to get really invested in improvisation, and I can't quite pinpoint when it, pinpoint when that happened. But by the time I was done in that studying environment and I was out into the world I was sort of really very interested in in spontaneous music making which sort of didn't really jive with the with the career that I had in mind and uh, huh, that's interesting yeah it was it was a, it was a strange thing it was an odd thing to kind of to have this huge love for completely improvised music but be going out there and sort of selling myself as you know someone who could drop into any pop session or drop into any kind of you know scratch band situation and and do the job which i think is you know it's like a bass player's want sometimes you know it's what you it's it's your role in life is to is to be a swiss army knife for other musicians well that's a fantastically <laughs> rich answer so i'm going to plop that back through so we've got like the basso continuo of bach we've got lou marino We've got this teenage uh, aspiring <laughs> bass player with this huge influence of Rage Against the Machine and uh, I presume Tim Comerford, right, from from that band. Tim Comerford is the boy. He's the man. And then we've got Gateshead Technical College, which delivers this opportunity for a, a potential music, musician to make money, but actually sends you down the route of jazz improvisation and uh, deprivation <laughs> has followed ever since, right? Um, very, very definitely. <laughs> so funny enough, I was having a chat last week with um, Tim Garland and Amanda, his wife, and they were talking about Sage Gateshead and, and the scene up in Newcastle. The, um, mm -hmm. Did you ever cross paths with Tim? T I've never played with Tim, but I've met him a handful of times, and he's a very nice chap. Um, and I was only peripherally aware. I studied after I'd spent a few years having a go at being a sort of functional musician. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I... 
I became, you know, the next sort of part, the next chapter of the story is that I went back and I did a master's degree at Newcastle University, which was specifically about improvised practice. And actually, again, jazz was kind of peripheral to that. I was yeah. really interested in sort of free improv and avant-garde and 20th century, um, you know, experimental composers and all of this kind of, you know, this very heady, very cerebral sort of stuff and very academic with the setting that it was mm. in. Um, but Tim is obviously allied, aligned with um, with Newcastle University. So I met him a handful of times at sort of student concerts and things like that. And I didn't know who he was really, which to my to my eternal shame, he was just a guy who hung around at these things. And I met him a handful of times. Oh, Tim Garland. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Found out he was a saxophone player. Found out what saxophone player he was. <laughs> just sort of hangs around a bit. I wonder who he is. Yeah. Brilliant. Loving it. That's so honest and cool. And that's very much his vibe as well. If you if you get a chance to meet him and talk to him, like he's 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 quite a humble dude. And, and you know, I've, I always appreciate that in, in the instances where I've, where I've managed to rub shoulders with like, quote unquote, the greats. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always nice when you find out that they've that they've got real, you know, humbleness, humility to them. That's always that's always a treat. That's always a lovely thing. And he's just a nice chap. I hope one day I get to play with him. That would be lovely. But you never know. Watford may be your junction, the confluence of of, of these things. Sort of. Who do you turn to now for inspiration? Is it still your sort of boulets and whatnot of the 20th century? Is it a wider jazz field? Is it something completely different? I'm a bit of a magpie, I think. Like a lot of like a lot of jazz musicians certainly or certainly the musicians who I who I really gravitate towards. I think mm. there's a there's a real sense of of being omnivorous. And I think again this is kind of a bass player thing. But um but I just you know, I, I'm always finding new people to be inspired by and I'm always really, really, really excited by the kind of search when you first encounter something and you get this you get this heady rush of, oh, there's all this stuff to learn. You know, and I'll and I'll I'll often find myself going really deep on on figures. Maybe they don't hang around as big inspirations kind of across the the path of my life, but but I think there's always something to be found. Um but in terms of the big touchstones I always go back to um, I just got the new, the new William Parker biography. Yeah. Um, and William Parker is is still a huge leading light for me, like an absolutely an absolutely titanic figure in music. And as I sort of got into playing jazz and started to pull all of these disparate threads of things that I was interested in together, that's really the kind of the 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 tabula rasa the the center for me is very much kind of. Is is free jazz and the and the New York downtown, and sort of attached to that some of the European things that happened. The Dutch school is a big influence for me, Michel Mengelberg and Han Benick and those folks. Um, I go back to Mingus endlessly. I'm always listening to Mingus. Um, I go back to Ornette Coleman very frequently. I go back to John Coltrane very frequently. You know, these are all sort of first call names but I think they I think they have such legacies and such kind of pivotal presence in the way we talk about this music that because mm. they're so deep because they have so much that you can kind of pull from if you want to go back there and refill your inspiration cup then those are those are just wells you can go to all the time well what are your other sort of junctions I mean is it beyond music you know uh, nature walking cooking I'm just always interested in what goes into that creative melding pot. 
I've I've gotten loads more into walking since lockdown happened. Good. <laughs> I never used to be I never used to be an outdoor type at all, but in the last again in the last sort of thirteen months, going outside and spending time amongst the trees has been has been really really important. Um, but I'm really fascinated by by process. I think um, I really love any artist talking about their approach. I think has something in it that that you can learn from and i'm 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 forever drawn to you know I, if i watch a film you know if i get really into watching you know movies of a particular sort of era or type then i'll want to go and find something about that thing you know it's like oh i'm watching lots of i don't know stanley kubrick films i better go and find some kubrick information somewhere and get really deep into that or I'll be reading and I'll go, I should definitely make sure I get some more books by this author so that I've got some stuff lined up to dig into deeper. Uh, right now I'm going through a big literature thing. I'm reading a lot of Don DeLillo and um, I read Infinite yeah. Jest last year, obviously, and that was um, really gently poignant. Um, but it's just his turn of phrase is amazing. And that kind of, that sort of thing, when you start really getting into the process that different artists use, even if it's not related to your discipline, I think there's 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 some core material there's some sort of matter at the bottom of it which i think can really help you know fire inspiration in anyone who's kind of curious well that that's what i sort of want to ask you a bit more about so i think lots of people probably as individuals are relevant of whether they're musicians or not or, or they're artists or, or whatever but i think we can all associate with those individual journeys and you get a, a passionate streak in your mind and you go i need to watch this or i need to read that or i need to associate why that it is um, is the sense of the group dynamic. What what happens then and what makes for a good creative group dynamic, in your opinion? Ooh, ooh. I think, this is a really good question. I think what makes for a really good dynamic amongst a group of musicians, particularly when you're talking, I, get, I mean, I infer that you're talking about improvisation maybe, but perhaps we just mean in general, Um I th I think a really good group dynamic is is all about everybody being present and having a having a relationship with what you with what you're there to make which is sort of open and non-judgmental and driven by driven by a common a common interest in finding out what's going to happen um or in or in or in sort of achieving the kind of the right version i don't necessarily want to say the perfect version but definitely the right mm. version of whatever you're there to do um that might sound a little bit heady I, a lot of people say that listening is the kind of is the most important thing for an improviser and i argue that it is but i think that presence you know being present being there in the momentary kind of stew of what's happening is kind of the yeah, is kind yeah. of the mother of listening you know i think that's the thing that really sort of makes your your listening skill your listening facility you know the sharpest and the most the most useful in that sort of environment um i watched a documentary series about basketball this is another thing right through lockdown I've, i'm not a sports guy not interested in sports really at all but we watched this this basketball documentary about the about the 90s Chicago Bulls. It's called The Last Dance. It's on Netflix. Uh, so that's Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, and all these other great, these are the great ball players. And someone says in that documentary that Michael Jordan's 
biggest gift as a sportsman is his is his presence of mind. It's not his athlet his athleticism, which is obviously, you know, Titanic. He's a serious, serious player and a seriously athletic. You know, he's a he's a real figure. But what makes him a fantastic teammate is his ability to be present for the game and to be completely aware of where he is and completely unfettered by things outside of yeah. the moment that you're in. And I, I think that is what creates the space for a good group dynamic. And then when you have that space, I think a group dynamic is whatever the people who are in it are bringing at their best, if that makes sense, you know. Um it could be that you've got that you've got a, a soul band, or it could be that you've got an ensemble with four tubers and uh, and the drum kit, or something. You know, something very outlandish and strange. Um, but the music that you make with that, or the art that you produce, is at its best when all of those personalities, regardless of what they're bringing instrumentally, are bringing the best of what they bring. And the space that lets that happen is is governed by that presence of mind and that kind of focus of intent so i think that's that's a roundabout way of answering your question but i think it's it's a really good question it's a really really interesting thought it's a really good answer and it's made me think if you pass the ball back to me of, an, of another netflix documentary um the defiant ones with uh, dr dre and jimmy iovine just talking yeah. about you know beats and, and international and uh, dr dre being compton's first billionaire type thing um but the the clear message that comes out of that little documentary series is respect mm -hmm. you get this real idea that dr drake can work with anyone from chrysler to you know young people or, or whatever but both parties have to respect each other and mm -hmm. that's built upon all those things that you've just listed around being present around giving the space and, and, and all of this uh, it's a fascinating process thank you for giving us a little a window into it right are you ready for my brand new Popetastic Cerebral Quickfire Challenge? Oh, gosh. It's happening. This is a new uh, quiz, and it's called the Base Deluxe Fretted Finger and Bamboozling Brain Buster Challenge. <laughs> Are you ready? I, I think I'm ready. Okay. Electric bass or double bass? Double bass. Four strings or five? Four. Slap or pluck? Oh, pluck. Up front or round the back? Round the back. I think. <laughs> Victor Wu-Tan or Marcus Miller? Oh, don't make me choose. Oh, Victor. Well, Marcus is going to be so sad. Uh, morning Calypso or Late Night Ballad? Late Night Ballad. Are you really free to do what you want to do? Yes. Inspirational archipelagos, do you choose the Hebrides or the Greek islands? <laughs> I choose the Hebrides. And finally, three options for all would-be electric bassists. Really low hung, something around the nether regions, or tummy touching. Something around the nether regions. Don't go, don't go crazy. Wow, man, <laughs> listen, I'm going to tell you that up. You have scored 33 and a half, which is a very, very good score at this stage <laughs> of that, that quiz progression. That Marcus Victor question is too, is too hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I will be writing to Marcus Miller and shaming you. Now, it's time for my set question, Mr. Pope. Are you ready for this? Please. Do you think creativity needs careful crafting or does discipline do a disservice to a free mind? Discuss. I believe that the craft element is very important. But I think it's it's about where it comes in the process for me personally. Um, I'm not very patient as a composer 
I'm not particularly the the kind of artist. I've tried doing things like making beats, say, um, where you can get micro-focused on eight bars of music and spend ages and ages putting things in the right place, micro-editing specific drum hits, you know, making sure things are sort of exactly as they need to be. And I just can't get anywhere with it. You know, mm. I can spend ages doing that, building a building a four or eight bar loop and going, well, that's fine. And then I don't really have the patience to turn that into a song. What I really what I really find myself doing more and more as a composer is writing things in the simplest manner, following my first instinct with any idea, and letting it be finished when it's being performed which takes a certain kind of discipline it takes a kind of discipline to to step back and and take out of the process a certain amount of your you know uncertainty and your um your desire to kind of i don't know when I used to struggle with this, it was always there was always some voice in the back of my mind sort of saying, this isn't enough. You need to make sure there's more here. You need to give the musicians more to do yeah. or they're going to, you know, they're going to switch off and not engage. And that's by practice with my quintet, which is my main, the main band that I write for. It just, you know, they're, they're great musicians. They're fantastic improvisers. They're wonderful listeners. They don't need me to tell them what to do. They need a they need a playground to play in, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is what the composition should be for me, you know. And this, I'm just talking about my approach, you know. The more space and the more kind of the more you invest in small ideas, and the more room you give musicians to really bring themselves to that, I think the results are just they're just far and away better than me telling anybody what to do you know i think I, you know i don't know bucket loads about harmony i don't know bucket loads about about jazz voicings or about orchestration or anything like that i can only i can only come up with the ideas that i come up with but the process and the discipline of being very very careful about how i handle those ideas is what lets me take that out and put it in front of the players in the shape that it is and then and then all bets are off. Everything, you know, goes out of the window. I, I don't even like to rehearse them very much. <laughs> I don't even want to kind of come up with that much of an idea about what is supposed to happen. Because if I have an idea about what's supposed to happen, I'm locking down potential of what could, you know. So that that's my that's my my in, my instinctual reaction to that question. And then, you know, craft and and the technique of writing and the technique of of putting music together certainly it has it has huge importance mm. and the more practice you can do with it the better but i always like to think about practice as being preparation rather than like mastery rather than having something kind of learned you know you practice i can't remember where i heard this i wish i could remember the the musician that i got this little nugget of 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 philosophy from but you 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 do all of this so that you're ready to step into the situation and then let anything happen. You know, you do all of your practice so that you can you can be quick with your instrument and follow your ideas through rather than come in and, and perfectly nail something every time. Because, you know, that's for me, that's not what the music's for. For me, the music is there to is there to, you know, see what happens. That's fascinating. 
I mean, it sounds to me like as well, you need a huge dollop of brave as well. Once you get to that point and you go, this still could <laughs> go places. Now, talking about brave, are you ready for the oh, top three album question? Go on. Well, John Pope, what are your top three albums of all time? And does it feature William Parker? Ooh, it does feature, it does feature cool. William Parker. You'll be happy to know. Um, so my uh, first, I'm going to mention the Mingus and Teebs album. Ooh which is Mingus with Eric Dolphy, I believe Ted Curzon, I believe Danny Richmond. I'm not sure who the other musician is, I'm sorry. Um, but it's a live set from 1960 from the Jazz Festival in Antibes. It was the first Mingus record I bought just as I was really getting into, into jazz music. And it was a huge influence on me because it's a chordless group. He doesn't have a piano player, although Bud Powell does appear and play on I'll Remember April, which is amazing, fantastic. Um, but it's 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 such a free record without being kind of fire music free jazz as we necessarily think of it. It is it is through and through Mingus. It it swings like the proverbial, you know, door. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and and has incredible feel to it all the way through. And he he was the first musician I encountered, even before Ornette Coleman in my journey, doing um, doing a cordless group. And I've hung on to that, and that has been a thing that is always deep and rich for me. Um, and I love it. You know, that's the lineup that my band has, is, is three horns, bass, and drums. You know, I don't have a guitar or a piano because those things, those things say something very specific about the music that I prefer to leave as a grey area. So that's number one. We've got a lockdown. Charles Mingus Antibe is one. Right, you've got two. You've got you've got two spaces left. Two spaces left. I'm gonna say William Parker O'Neill's Porch. Right, is um, is an album with Lewis Barnes on trumpet, Rob Brown on alto, and the great Hammy Drake on drums, and William Parker himself compositions and double bass. That album is. I think it's a it's a perfect meeting point between free jazz and sort of written ensemble music and it's completely untethered by the sort of slightly tedious questions about you know do you have to have tunes do you have to just play free do you have to have anything be you know that mu- it doesn't matter with this music it's just it's just celebratory and lively and full of depth and the musicians are forever skipping in and out of this space where they're just completely open and then playing this this very recognizable jazz language which is which is you know heavy and really really deep but also you know sprightly and lively and has shape to it and and I could just listen to William Parker and Hammy Drake as a rhythm section all day all day they are Hammy Drake in particular I think has got something about the way he plays the drums that just just captivates me entirely I don't know how you're going to follow this so Charles Mingus William Parker and O'Neill's Porch what can possibly join that that duo to make a a perfect triumvirate a perfect triumvirate. This is really hard. I think, and with the caveat that you're asking me this question today yeah. and tomorrow, the answer might be different, <laughs> of course. I want to give Ornette a space as well. And 
I think probably if I was going to pick an Ornette record, it would be The Shape of Jazz to Come. Fantastic. Just because it has so many, so many classic tunes on it. And my band, I don't know, if we, I don't know if we talked about the history of the quintet, yeah. but um, my my band formed as an Ornette Coleman tribute band. Is that right? It did um, in two thousand and sixteen, which I think is a year or so after after Ornette had passed away. Jazz North, who I have a long relationship with now, um, the great Paul Bream, formerly of formerly the the um, the kind of chair of Jazz North, yeah. invited me to do a performance as a tribute to Ornette Coleman and as a celebration of Jazz North's 50th birthday because it was, I think, I think it was 50 years more or less to the day since they put on their third ever concert, which was Ornette Coleman with the Golden Circle Trio with David Ensons on and Billy Higgins. Mm. And I'd been talking to Paul for ages about my, my desire to have an Ornette-style band, you know, every time I'd see him at a gig. And Paul, like, just to shout out Paul Bream for a second, Paul Bream, without him, I wouldn't have a jazz career or an interest in jazz. So I really, really need to, or the interest in the jazz that I'm currently doing, you know. You know, he was really, really welcoming. He's been putting gigs on in the Northeast for years and years and years and always, like, really interesting stuff and a really wide variety of music of all different types and, and you know, great American names, wonderful European acts you've never heard of, up-and-coming British bands, and everything in between, all, all across that spectrum. And, crucially, this is actually, this ties into the, the story of my, of my jazz history a little bit. Go on. The moment, where I dis- the moment where I discovered free improvisation was a concert that Paul had organised with The Star and Shadow, which is a DIY cinema space up here. Um, they put gigs on, as well as films and all this kind yeah. of stuff. And he'd, he put on Mick Beck, the solo um, tenor saxophone and bassoon player from Sheffield, who's who's a sort of critical part of, the, I guess, the second wave of British free improvisers after Evan and Derek and all those guys. Um, Mick Beck is part of this as part of this wave. Steve Beresford and, yeah, and those yeah. and those those folks. And I'd never seen a free improv gig ever, but I heard about this gig going down. Mick Beck playing, and I thought that just sounds too weird. I've got to go and see it. And and it was molecular, like the level of the level of rewriting that happened at that gig. I just became a different person. Like it was, it was something, something else. He did things with the saxophone that I'd never heard anyone do. He played forty minutes completely on his own. He did what? about twenty minutes on bassoon, like unreal, absolutely unreal. And I met Paul Bream at that gig, and I asked him, you know, I, you know, he asked me, "Oh, do you like jazz? Do you play?" And I was like, I, at the time, I was just about starting to go out to jam sessions and get interested in music. And I was like, yeah, you know, I do a little bit of this, and and I'm interested in free improv. And he was like, oh, well, you know, I run. You know, I run a Jazz Northeast and I've got like a, an email list that I send around with gigs. So it was through meeting Paul that I started finding out that Newcastle had this kind of, had this sort of secret reputation as a place where where amazing music happens. You know, there's lots of musicians that, that Paul would organise gigs for where they do two UK gigs at Cafe Otto, say, and then Newcastle at the Bridge Hotel or something like that. So I got I got into that whole thing through him. So this is all a way of saying that it was Paul who invited me to put an Ornette Coleman band together to do a tribute. And I kind of 
ummed and ahed about how to do it and then finally thought, well, I don't want to do a quartet because it would just be a straight a straight homage then. And I always wanted to do the Mingus at Antibes style band with with three horns. So I so I made the phone calls. I got Johnny Hunter, who I really wanted to do it. And I love Johnny. He's an amazing drummer. Basically, basically my favorite drummer to play with. Um, Faye was up for it because I didn't want to pick between Ornette Coleman and Dewey Redmond. So I got <laughs> her to play tenor. Smart choice. Um, <laughs> smart choice, right? And um, and we'd already been playing a little bit in Archipelago by that point. I think it was quite it was near the beginning of Archipelago, and we'd played a little bit in that sort of in that sort of setting by the time I invited her to come and do this thing. And uh, Graham Hardy, trumpet player, Jamie Stockbridge, alto player. I knew these guys from the scene, and I knew them both as slightly straighter, more mainstream players. But I thought there was something about them that made me think, oh, they'll really they'll really get into this. I think it'll be good. And and the first thing we ever did on stage, we stepped out and we played Schoolwork by Ornette Coleman um, at the Bridge Strong. Hotel in Newcastle. And now that's a great song. So Ornette has to have a slot in my in my top three albums. Um, and yeah, I think Shape of Jastacomb is going to be the one because it's got Lonely Woman on it, which is just one of the most perfect Absolutely. melodies. Ever wow, ever. what a top three! And I can guarantee that's a unique uh, a unique trio for us. Um, I think we might have had the shape of jazz to come, but uh, we certainly haven't had uh, O'Neill's porch and um, and Thebes. Maybe we've had it, but it's always worth the promo. Loving it. Okay, so I'm going to be fascinated by what you're going to do next. So I'm going to introduce you to our house band, where once there were seven, they're now stand ten. Uh, we're growing like Topsy, but it still remains the tightest, slickest, sickest band in podcast show business. So up front on reeds <laughs> is the indomitable Vi Red. On bone, we've got James Morrison. And on trumpet, we've got Dizzy Gillespie. In the back, we've got Jeffrey Keezer on piano, Shirley Tete on guitar, mm. bassists, mm. Jacko Pistorius and Christian McBride, Roy Haynes on drums, Oof. and Leanne Carroll on vocals and backup keys. Plus... We've still got Duke oh Ellington, gosh. who's been uh, given a break, but he's duking around out front, uh, pontificating. And we now have an official band artist, thanks to my brother, with the skills and fantasy landscapist of Yes Man, Roger Dean. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> John Pope, knowing that everyone deserves a break to eat their sarnies, who would you like to give a rest to? And who would you like to bring in? And I repeat, band numbers can go down as well as up. Roy Haynes is amazing, but he's like he's like ninety odd. He definitely needs a break. <laughs> he definitely definitely needs needs a sit out. Um, so I think for this band, for this incredible band, I think I'll I'll let Roy sit down, man. and and go have a cup of tea. And I'd like to put. I've been listening to a lot of things with Jerry Allen on the right. movie, and Jerry Allen had a great relationship with Terry Lynn Carrington. And I think I'd like to pull Terry Lynn Carrington in and put her in the drum stool because I think I think she's amazing and she's also incredibly versatile. We like that. We like flexibility amongst our musicians. Totally. And I think with this lineup, with the with the sound of this lineup, it's gonna be it's gonna be a real a real smorgasbord of of. Yeah, you're music. gonna yeah have to have your ears on when you're listening to this crew. Fantastic. Terry Lynn Carrington has kicked Roy Haynes out of the band. Um, but possibly only temporarily. <laughs> uh, wow, John, that was cool. That's good analysis. <laughs> so we're in that we're in our closing stages. So I just want to thank you, obviously, for being on today um, and knowing that we will see you here in Watford on in May next year. But in the meantime, if, if you're 
chomping at the bit for John Pope quintet action, for Archipelago Delight, for any creative output that you have, where are we best placed to, to find things and keep track and blah, blah, blah. If you want to keep up with me and the things that I'm doing, um, you can go to johnpopebase.co.uk, which is my website. Cool. Uh, on there, you can link out to most of the projects that I'm doing. And also, if you want to buy my music directly, you can go to johnpope.bandcamp.com, where I've nice. got nearly most of the stuff that is kind of that comes out of me as a as a self-directed artist comes out of there um archipelago have got their own place archipelago band.bandcamp.com uh we're about to launch a new website with archipelago so i'll, I'll hold off on giving Ooh. you that um until we figured out what that domain name is going to be um but you can also follow me you can follow me on instagram and on twitter it's at base pope on both of those which is one word and um and I'm always doing things. There's new stuff out. There's new stuff coming. There's a record out right now. I want to plug this actually dead quick, if you don't mind. Please do. I have a yeah, we're all ears. I have a record. I was intensely lucky to be picked to play with the great Joe McPhee and the equally uh -huh. great Paul Hessian um, at the Newcastle Festival of Jazz and Improvised Music a couple of years ago. And that concert, the King's Hall concert, has just come out on CD on deluxe gatefold cd through new jazz and improvised music recordings who also put out my quintet album um it's a, it's a limited run they're fantastic people and you should definitely you should definitely have a word with wes the the label head um if you want to talk about his involvement in the scene he's a really he's a really really key figure up here in newcastle and i think he'd be interesting to speak to um is he really funny he's he's quite funny he's very yeah, i'm only interested in the funny ones john all right well hey don't tell him I said he was only quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> nice. Um, no, he's 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 a great guy. Yeah. He's been really supportive and and he organized putting this CD out. And it's just wild to me that there's a CD that exists with Joe McPhee and me on it. Like I can't quite pass that. But um but it's there, it's out, and it's really, really good. We we will all check it out and uh, the wise ones amongst us will buy it. So if you've liked what you've listened to today, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our valuable episodes. And if you want to know more about the Watford Jazz Junction, check out our website at watfordjazzjunction.com. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, or even email us at jazzwatfordlive at gmail.com, but only to say nice things. Obvs. So next time uh, for our season finale, I think uh, we're in conversation with clarinet virtuoso Adrian Cox. Ooh. And meanwhile, don't forget to keep your ears fresh and always connect with something new. So it's goodbye, lovely listener. It's goodbye, John. Goodbye. Thank you very much for having me. Our absolute pleasure. And it's goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.